0: Hi, welcome to all of you. Really glad to be spending this time with you online. And I mean literally really glad to spend this time with you online. Uh, For those of you who don't know me that well, I'm basically a raving introvert who, because of my job, has to spend every day pretending I'm an extrovert and acting like that. So I'm pretty excited and I invite all of you who are introverts to join me in this excitement of being online. I think you know, probably it's the first time I can think of where we were government-mandated, church-endorsed, social distancing, and and isolating because of our love for humanity. We're finally the ones who are showing the way, so congratulations, welcome, with me if that's the case. I think it's just nice that for a change, uh, the loser is the person who went to the party. So, anyway, feel free to join in, use some little hashtag like introverts unite or maybe introverts separate, however you'd like to do it, go for it. Anyway, today we're continuing on in a series, I'll leave that down there, on a series on the Thursday before, and this is the third in that series, the first, uh, Pastor Brent preached the first two, the first was on the Lord's Supper, the second was on Gethsemane, and today we're looking at the arrest and the betrayal of Jesus. It's an infamous story. You've heard it, I know it. It fits in the annals of the great betrayals of human history. But like most things in most of our lives, while the series is called The Thursday Before, this didn't really happen just the Thursday before. The journey that led Judas to his famous kiss of betrayal started a long time before that. And we could telescope it backwards if we wanted to. We could look a couple of days back into what happened, or maybe a couple of weeks, or even the previous three years that Judas had spent with Jesus. We could even go further back into Israel's rejection of God's plan and God's covenant that occurs in the Old Testament, or even further back to the garden. And this story that we look at is kind of the nexus of two stories that come together. And there's a sense in which all of Scripture is two stories. There's the short beginning story of sin that occurs in Genesis that results in the Garden of Eden, the sin that occurred there, and the expulsion from the Garden, and the isolation that occurred from people in the relationship with God. Then the rest of Scripture is the long, long story back. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of salvation history. It's a story that culminates in the betrayal, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the birth of the early church in the book of Acts. Today we're focusing on two small parts of that story. The story of Judas, the story of Jesus, and the way that they interact together and some of the implications that holds for us. So if you have a Bible with you or if you just want to watch it on the screen, either way, we're going to read together from Matthew chapter 26 starting in verse 47, remembering again that the Last Supper had occurred, then the Garden of Gethsemane had occurred, and this is what starts to happen in verse 47 of Matthew. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus, and they arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword. He drew it out. He struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he would put at once at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, but you didn't arrest me. This has all taken place that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Two stories. The first of those stories is about Judas, and it's about corrosion in the heart, corrosion in the soul, and the destruction that ultimately came from that. And when I use that term, corrosion of the soul, what I mean is that Judas had things in his life that he knew was wrong. He had been taught by Jesus was wrong. He doesn't deal with it, and that ultimately leads to a really tragic end. I think most of us know that corrosion is not a good thing. It doesn't go well when we got corrosion in anything. I've got a Ford Ranger that goes back to 2009. A couple of years ago, there was this little spot, little chip that became rusty. And I've watched it, and I've watched it. And I've washed it. Now, about two years later, it's much bigger. It's about four inches long. It's bubbling all through it. It's rusting through. And I'm still watching it. I'm aware that the corrosion on my vehicle isn't good. I should do something. But I'm not. That's what Judas was doing in his heart and in his soul. That's why James writes about sin in our hearts and the way that it goes. And he says, each one is tempted when by his own desire... And those might be evil, they might not. He's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's corrosion of the soul. It's something that grows in us. And Judas, the betrayer, did not become that on the Thursday of the Passion Week. He became that long before. Choices he made, decisions that he made. Judas is mentioned about 20 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, about two times in Acts. He's probably the only disciple who was not from Galilee, probably from a town named Kirioth. Maybe he felt like an outsider. We're not sure. Texts don't really tell us that. We know that he was the treasurer of the group for the disciples, that he kept the money. There are some who feel that Judas betrayed Jesus simply because he wanted money. There are some who believed Judas betrayed him because he was a zealot who was hoping for a revolution against Rome. He wanted Jesus to lead in a coup for power and that Judas hoped and believed that if Jesus did that and he was one of the 12, he would get a position of acclaim, a position of power. And there are some who believe that even the betrayal was Judas making this last-ditch effort to force Jesus to actually stand up and lead that coup, to do something about Rome. Likely all of those are part of it we know for sure that Judas liked money. If we go into any of the Gospels, this story is told. And John, he tells it about a big party that's going on in Bethany, not long before Jesus is arrested. And at that party are a lot of the people Jesus knows well, including Lazarus, who he's raised from the dead, and Mary and Martha and the disciples. And during the party, Mary comes out with this really expensive jar of perfume worth about a year's wages, and pours it on the head and the feet of Jesus. We're told in John that she actually wiped it off his feet with her hair. And Judas Iscariot, it says, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor, he said? Why didn't you do something better with this money, Jesus, than this? And it sounds, you know, super spiritual. He cared about the poor. He thought money shouldn't be wasted. It should be used way more carefully. But it goes on in John to say this. It says, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. He liked money. We know that he liked money. We're told in that same story and told also in the similar account in Matthew 26 that the perfume was poured on Jesus as preparation for his burial. And he tells the disciples that the time is coming short. The time of the crucifixion is near. And this perfume was some of the preparation for that. And it may have been that when Jesus told them this, told Judas this, and the other disciples, that it was the final trigger for Judas. We're not sure. It doesn't tell us. But we are told in Matthew 26, verse 14, that right after Jesus was anointed at Bethany, it says in verse 14, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for the opportunity to hand him over. Judas looked to betray Jesus. And it's a pretty tragic story that ends in the actual betrayal, which we already read in verse 47 And through 49, it says, when he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, and with him was a large crowd with swords, clubs, sent from the chief priests, the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. There's no photos then, there's no facial recognition software, there's no guarantee that people would know which one was Jesus although some probably did. So Judas, in his arrangement to betray him, goes to him and kisses him to indicate to the crowd that were coming to arrest him that this is the man, this is the one. We're told in verse 50 that Jesus saw him coming and calls him friend. Friend, he says, do what you came for. It's kind of an odd line. I wonder about the meaning. Some think it's irony. He was no friend at all. Others believe it was pretty sincere. I tend towards the sincere, in the account in John, we're told that as part of the Last Supper, Jesus also washed the feet of the disciples, and he explained to the disciples, look, this is what love looks like, and he washed the feet, and we're told that he washed the feet even of Judas Iscariot, knowing that he would betray him. I think when he uses this word friend, he's demonstrating again the deep, deep love that he has for people, but we don't know that for sure. We know this large crowd came It included some of the temple guard. One of the disciples, we're told in John again, it was Peter, lops off the ear of one of them. And Jesus picks it up, heals it, puts it back on. He turns to the crowd he says, who do you think I am? Do you think I'm a revolutionary? Do you think that's what I'm here for? Which was exactly what some of them wanted. It may be, likely partly, was what Judas wanted somebody who led a revolt against Rome, that would stir up this. And maybe the betrayal of Jesus would stir him up enough that the crowd would gather around him and that revolt would begin. But Jesus wasn't that. Although, in another sense, he was the biggest game changer in all of history. And we know, of course, how this ended for Judas. The next chapter begins in Matthew by having Judas overcome with remorse. He goes back to the chief priests, The Pharisees, he throws the money at their feet and says, I betrayed an innocent man. They wanted nothing to do with it. And Judas went out and he hung himself. We're told in Acts 1.18 that eventually his body fell from that and it hit rocks and his intestines. It's just not a pretty picture at all. Not a pretty story. But it's a story that has big, flashing warning signs for each of us. For me and for you Judas had every opportunity with Jesus he was one of the disciples he was called by Jesus he was mentored by Jesus himself for three years and Matthew doesn't want us to miss the opportunity that Jesus had so in chapter 26 verse 14 when he went to the chief priests it says Jesus or Jesus starts Let me step backward. Judas was betraying Jesus. It starts, one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, went to them. In verse 47, when Judas shows up for the actual betrayal, it says again, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and then refers to him as the betrayer. I looked earlier this week. I can't find anywhere in the Gospels where that term, one of the twelve, is used, other than for Judas during the betrayer. I actually only see it one other place. It is used for Thomas in John chapter 20 when Thomas didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead and Thomas the doubter said, unless I see the wounds in his hands, I won't believe. That same term is used then. Matthew doesn't want us to miss the fact he was one of the inside group. He had been with Jesus. He had seen Jesus do miracles. He'd been part of the stories. At a minimum, he had heard all of the stories. He was there when Jesus fed 5,000 people on the hillside, when he took five loaves, two fishes, and he broke them, and 12 baskets were left over after the 5,000 people were fed. He was there when Jesus walked on water and called them to be people of faith. He was there when Jesus healed people who were born blind. He was there even when Lazarus was raised from the dead, just a short time before. He was there at the party in Bethany when this man who had been raised from the dead is there reclining at the table with them. He's sent out by Jesus to cast out demons, to heal the sick. He's taught about the significance, the importance, the meaning of the kingdom of God. He's taught these amazing parables that said, how should we live? What is the cost of living for me? He knows all of those things, and most of us wish we could have seen it. Most of us look at those kind of stories in the Gospels, and we think if we saw that, if we heard that, our faith, our belief, our commitment would be rock-solid. I think most of us wish there were times actually desperate for times where we could see the power of God the power of Christ lived right before us be there in the crowd see it touch it experience it know the wisdom of the teaching that he gave and we don't know how Judas could ever ever have made the decision made the choices he did But what we know is that Judas allowed his own desires for power, for position, for money, maybe even nationalism for his own country, to take precedence over what Jesus was calling him to do. And I've wondered at times if Judas, the betrayer, understood Jesus better than any of the other disciples. Because Judas betrayed Jesus because he had come to the inescapable conclusion that he wasn't getting any of the things he wanted. If he was going to follow Jesus, he wasn't going to get the power, the position, the money, all of those things. Instead, he was being called to love, to sacrifice, to serve, even to suffer. And that's not what he had planned on giving his life to. It's not what he wanted to do. He traded Jesus for what he could get now, with no eye on eternity, with no perspective beyond himself, with no willingness to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Big, flashing warning signs. I think it's harsh, maybe very harsh, for me to say that we make the same decision at times. But here's the truth I think we make the same decision at times we do the same thing we allow sin to germinate sometimes even rooted in good ideas good things but that sin begins to germinate and we see it grow we see it take root we don't pull it out we don't deal with it until it gets harder and harder and harder to deal with it and I'm continually amazed by my own ability to lie to myself. I have a really impressive capacity to tell myself what I want to hear, to see things the way I want to see them, to create a story in my mind that fits the narrative that I want to tell. Judas is part of a small museum of famous betrayals. Brutus to Julius Caesar, Benedict Arnold, Vidken Quisling in Norway. And we look at all those betrayals, and we tend to look at ourselves as a hero in a story, and we think, that's never going to be me. I'd never do that. I'd never pay that price. I'd never be that short-sighted. And if we're a follower of Jesus, we see Judas as the worst of the bunch. We don't recognize ourselves in him at all. We don't see ourselves. We don't see what can happen even when we know better. I work, as some of you know, at Fellowship Pacific, which is our family of churches. Every year, uh, we read at least one book and spend some time at a retreat talking about self-awareness, about telling ourselves the truth, about problems of self-deception. And we kind of just keep working at it, and working at it, and working at it. One of those books that we read, because we use it with students in our Immersed program and in training with pastors, I've read five times or so. Every time I read that book, I'm brought back to the point Of having to learn some basic lessons and I realized that I have a shocking ability to lie to myself something you'd think I would know well because I do it over and over and over I just learned that no what I do over and over and over is lie to myself not tell the truth the reality is for each of us for you for me is that every time we start down a path of compromised values what we think of as small issues, small sins, little deals that don't matter. We're introducing corrosion into our lives that will continue to expand exponentially, and if we don't deal with it, it will hurt us deeply. And the deepest cut of all will be the fact that we have betrayed our most deeply held values, our ardently held beliefs, and that we have betrayed the love that Jesus showed to us. Whenever you hear those words one of the 12 realize it means that the most insider of insiders can make the same mistake i can you can it's the story of judas the good news of course is that there's a second story there's a better story it's the story of easter it's the story of jesus it's the story of commitment and story of the cost of commitment Because the path of Jesus to the cross also began a long time before. Right after that sin in the garden, God's plan for redemption, God's salvation history began. That culminates in the person of Jesus. And at any point during that, it could have stopped. We're told, actually, even right at the moment of this betrayal, that Jesus could have stopped at verse 53... He says, do you not, or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels, a pretty impressive sight. It's a reminder to us that neither the Jewish leaders nor Rome nor Judas could have done anything if Jesus had not chosen to go to the cross, if Jesus hadn't chosen to follow the plan of God. But he didn't call for the 12 legions. He says he had to keep the road that he was on to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill God's plan. Psalm 41 says the Messiah had to be betrayed. Zechariah 11 tells us it's for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus, we know, knew what Judas was doing. He knew about Judas's betrayal. He tells him to do what you came to do. Earlier in the same chapter, during the Last Supper, he tells all of the disciples while they're sitting there that he's going to be betrayed, and that the one who eats out of the bowl with him is that one. Judas, lying, says to him, It's not me, right? And Jesus says, No, it is you. Further back, if we go back to John 6, It says, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And goes on in John 6 to say that it was Judas. It's an incredible level of commitment to the plan and the purpose of God the Father. As the Son of God, God incarnate, Jesus was the culmination of the plan to restore our broken relationship with God, that long journey back from right after the garden was being put into play, and it wasn't just the Thursday before the crucifixion, story that goes back to the garden, back to the love of God for his people, for you, for me. John 1 tells us that when Jesus came, when Jesus was born, he came full of grace and truth. Grace is God's undeserved favor, meaning we could do nothing to earn it. It wasn't owed to us. Truth telling us that God was calling us through his son to something and to someone beyond ourselves while confronting us with our broken humanity. I think that's why I find the prayer that Brent talked about last week in Gethsemane so bittersweet where Jesus prayed before he went down this final path. He said, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Sinless Lamb of God committed to the plan of God. Walking it to the very end. Jesus paid the price of commitment. He knew the journey he was on. He knew the betrayal. He knew the betrayer. He knew the cost. He knew the cost for your sin. He knew the cost for my sin. And he chose to pay it. It's an important truth. If corrosion destroys, we also need to remember that commitment costs. There is a true, legitimate cost to committing. And ultimately, which is kind of ironic in its own way, Judas wasn't wrong in his analysis of the situation. When Judas looked at Jesus, he was right. Because if we're followers of Jesus in the hopes of getting prestige or power or position or money, we're in the wrong game. That's why Jesus would say we have to count the cost. We need to know what we're getting into. We need to know what we've signed up for. Count the cost. Sometimes in the history of the church, we've lost our way, in a big way. We succumb to the temptation of big religion. We want a bigger political voice. We want some entitlement within society. We want people to respect our viewpoint. In some cases in the history, we've even wanted straight up raw power. And I recognize we have a need to be salt and light in our society. I recognize we have a need to influence what goes on in our communities, in our cities, in our country. But we need to realize that power is not what we were called to. Not ever. Sometimes in our own local churches, we lose our way and we succumb to the temptation of our own religion or religion on our own terms. You know, so we'll give when we get a charitable receipt. We serve when it's convenient. We resolve conflict when it's easy. We view church sometimes as quid pro quo investment. If we get what we want and we like it, we contribute back. If we don't, we go somewhere else. It's not what Jesus called us to. The life of Jesus teaches us over and over and over and over that commitment costs. Commitment costs. There is no cheap avenue. There is no discount trip. We cannot come to Jesus without coming to the cross. We cannot come to Jesus without coming to the cross. That's why Paul would write in Philippians 3 I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, which we love. And he goes on, he says, in the fellowship of his suffering, which we don't. If we want more depth to our intimacy with Jesus, if we want more legitimacy, in our walking in the Spirit, more fruit of the Spirit in our lives, then this is the Jesus that we embrace. The Jesus of the cross. The Jesus of the betrayal. The Jesus of costly commitment. So let's not lie to ourselves about this. At a minimum, let's tell ourselves the truth. If we want to follow Jesus, it will cost us. In real life, in real terms... When we talk to friends about Jesus, it risks those friendships. When we love while we're being rejected, it costs us. When we stand in our values and on biblical truth in a wildly pluralistic and selectively tolerant society, it costs us. When we give and we support our church when we don't get the services we're used to, it costs us. The list of these kinds of things, of the kind of costs that Christ calls us to, is endless. It goes on and on important to remember, corrosion destroys, commitment costs. The teaching of this passage, the teaching of the betrayal of Jesus, has stood for thousands of years. It's going to be standing long, long after our pandemic panic is over. But nevertheless, I think for most of us, In our lifetimes, at least, we've never experienced anything like this current COVID-19 crisis. It's something new, something we don't really know how to deal with. My guess, and it's just a guess, is that the longer it goes, the more it will test our society. The longer it goes, we're going to find out who we are, more than simply whether or not we can practice social distancing or whether we can handle isolation. It's going to start to reveal our character. It will start to show us where our true confidence is found, and it will increasingly demonstrate which path and what values we're following. Some of those are obvious, and we see them. Some of them are even almost funny. I was phoning through some of our churches this past week, talking to them about what they're doing through this, and three of them asked me if I'd seen the Costco Langley video, because I live in Langley. Yes, everybody's seen the costly or the Costco Langley video. They asked me if I'd seen the picture of the person selling toilet paper out of the back of their car in Costco. Yes, everybody's seen that picture. Those things are true. But there's also ample, ample opportunity in this to show something different. And thankfully, we get to hear those stories as well. This passage in Matthew, a terrible story is a story of betrayal, but it's two different pathways. It's two different values. One is an inner life of commitment. The other is an inner life that's been corroded. And every day, every single day, we're choosing our direction. We're choosing the final outcome. We're choosing which narrative we want to be a part of. I want to encourage you The longer this goes in every day of your life in every interaction in your own home in your own family wherever you might have to go choose a narrative in which commitment costs focused on the person of Jesus Christ the walk that he modeled for us and please remember that rarely is that direction chosen solely on the Thursday before let's pray father Come and we look at your son Jesus again as we near Easter. We're again, even in the story of this betrayal, reminded about the cost that he paid for us, that with full knowledge, full understanding of what he was doing, he walked the path that you had laid out for him, the path to the cross, the path to crucifixion because of your love for us, a love rooted thousands of years ago, a love rooted in your desire to be in a relationship with us from the day you created us, before even that day of creation occurred. And that from the time of the garden, you've been in the process of calling us back to yourself. Father, today we ask that you would help us to draw near to you, to hear from you, to hear your spirit and respond for the glory of your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.